It's been a big week, even, dare say, two or three weeks. We, around the 4th of July, you know, we get caught up in this place that we're from, most of us, or some of us, like the pastor, came here in this special place. And we get this feel for whatever the 4th of July is. What I learned being married to Sandy's family is most of you say, oh, I'm doing the 4th of July, and this is the 4th of July. I don't know if you know, but that's actually a date. That's not the purpose. What I learned from Sandy's family is that's Norm's birthday, her dad. And so the fireworks were for his birthday. The 4th of July was the date. Uh, But you were all, and they're still putting the fireworks up. He's been gone five years, and they're still putting the fireworks up in his honor. So at least that's the way Sandy's family saw this day. We're going to talk about this idea, which is a little um, different, this idea of patriots, and we're going to define this a little more, because this is where the word patriotism comes from. I think we come from a common understanding, at least for a lot of us, and I saw it in people even last week, this personal patriotism people are wearing like shirts with American flags on them. Some people wearing American flag pants, um, pins, things like that. And that is a version, going to see fireworks is a version of how we participate in this idea of patriotism, at least in this country and in this place. And I think at least in part we're all saying that we're thankful at least for the blessings of this place, the ease of this place. I mean, we could all... I mean, the only reason I belong here is that my parents had me born here. There's certainly much more difficult places in this world where you could be born in a place that's full of war. And all that you know is your neighborhood getting bombed out, that your prospects for education are inside a refugee camp. And I could have been there. I have no choice in this. I could be a person who was born in Syria, you know. And all of my opportunities, I could be the exact same person that I am now, but all of my life's opportunities would be vastly changed by those limits that were put on because I just happened to be of Syria or Libya or, you know, Jordan. I mean, there's all kinds of places depending on what you think. Just because they don't have a lot doesn't necessarily mean that's bad. I mean, you could live in a place where people have very little in material goods and still be in a good place. That's true. I mean, America isn't great because we have a lot of stuff. Some people might think that, but I don't think that's really what we're about. We definitely have opportunity and in some ways an ease of life. The definition of this word patriotism Um, at least out of the dictionary, is that someone who loves, supports, or defends their country. So do we have veterans here, people have served or are serving? Do we have anybody like that? Do we have anybody? Yes, thank you. And then how about family members that are serving? Do we have people in our families that are doing that? That's typically who we're talking about in this time of the 4th of July, those people that have joined and served in the military especially, 
And I think it's true in the strictest sense in this definition of those folks. And I want to tell you a story about Mark Sasseville and Heather Penny. They were in the National Guard. Heather is a brand new second lieutenant. She came in that wave of where we thought girls might be able to fly fighter jets, maybe. And she was in that wave of some of the first women who could fly fighter jets. Brand new rookie. And they're in Washington, D.C. And this is before 9-11, where our version of how we protect our country in the National Guard was different. And they get this notice that there's a plane in Ohio flying toward Washington, D.C., and it's intended to crash into the Capitol. In fact, it is 9-11. I say before 9-11, but this story is one of those in 9-11. And they have two really great F-16 jets. There's a group of four of them. The colonel has a team of four people. And they have been given orders that if this jet, which is in Ohio, coming through Pennsylvania to the Capitol, if it comes within a certain distance, they have orders to shoot it down so that it cannot crash into the Capitol. There's only one problem, though. We don't store our jets at 9-11, fully armed, ready to go, on the tarmac. So they're not loaded. We have these perfectly fine jets, and they can carry Sidewinder missiles. But because the missiles are pretty dangerous, we don't even store those ready to go. It's not like a lot of people that have a gun in their house ready to load and shoot. You have to put the bullet together first. You have to put the powder in and all that. In a Sidewinder missile, you have to put the targeting pod in, you have to put the motor on, you have to put the fins on, you have to give it the pin, you have to give it the warhead. There's all this stuff that has to be built first, bolted together. Then they put it onto the jet. Then they pull all the safety mechanisms off. Then they can go fly with it. Because if you don't do these things and any accidents happen, these things blow up. So it's not safe to just store them ready to go. And this jet's flying toward D.C. So the first two jets that are going to kike off and fly against this jet don't have any missiles on them at all. So they take off the first two jets. The colonel, Sass, he takes the two middle people that have some experience and they're waiting to get their jets armed and he takes the rookie with him. And they take off and they're in the air and they start heading west toward Ohio. They enter Pennsylvania and they get to shoot down this jet only they don't have anything to shoot it down with. And so they make a plan while they're flying in the air. This isn't things you train for in the military. That the colonel is going to fly into the cockpit of the plane, and Penny, Heather, is going to fly into the tail of the plane so that it comes down. That's what they've agreed to do. Because they don't have any bullets. And we know that this plane has people in it, like civilians, regular people. But the old way of hijacking planes and landing them at an airport and asking for a lot of money and then flying to Libya 
isn't happening. On 9-11, they're using passenger planes as weapons and have already flown them into buildings and killed the people. So that is, and these people that signed up and swore to defend the Constitution against enemies, foreign and domestic, agree to this as well. There isn't any question like, is it optional? That's what they're going to go do. And certainly in this definition of patriotism, we would agree, wouldn't we, that this is what often we ask our soldiers to do. And so for those reasons, we would definitely say they have served. We would agree, right? Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Our Lord and Father, my friends and I um, want to understand what you intend for us in a message about patriotism. What does it mean for us? What can we be transformed to be part of? And we ask you, Lord, to enter our hearts, to open our minds and our eyes, that we may see patriotism in the way that you have, that that definition may be bigger than we think. We ask you to open our wills to that. And I ask you, Lord, to help us find something that we can gain by this message on this idea of patriotism and freedom. And we ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. We ask the Holy Spirit in this place. In your name we pray, amen. There are other versions of patriotism, and depending on where you sit in any argument, some people will say that you're a patriot or a terrorist, depending on who you're arguing with and whether they agree with you or they're against you. And people will, and it's happening a lot in the last few years, where we suddenly decide that we can divide ourselves you know, we used to really rally around this holiday and feel united as a group. And now we're really spending a lot of energy saying, if you hold this view or this position, you're either a patriot or a terrorist, depending on what bumper sticker you prefer or what TV channel you watch. And I think that's a message that is really dividing us, and it's more about nationalism than patriotism. It's being colored as patriotism, but it really isn't patriotism, it's something else. And even if you're on the other side of those messages, it still isn't patriotism on the other side either. It's just another version to make us smaller, to make us weaker, and to make us less. And so what I want to go is a completely new direction, if you'll go with me, about what can make us bigger and what can make us all more united and more stronger. The word patriotism we gain through the French, but it comes more from a Greek word, patrios, and I could be saying that wrong, it's all Greek to me. But this idea that you are of your father, that you and your people come with a certain way and a certain culture and a certain thing. You know, if you were part of the Scots, maybe everyone's wearing a kilt. That's of their fathers, of a manner and a style of your people and your place. And I want to ask ourselves, as we are here, what is the kind of people we are? What is of our place? How do we have our version of this word patriotism here that might be different than what people think? Let's look a little bit, and we're going to cover you know, 30 chapters, 25 chapters of Genesis really quickly, but the stories are well known. 
is how does Scripture teach us about our government and what our service is and what our parts in it? And we know as we read through a lot of the Old Testament, whether we read Kings or Chronicles, we see lots of examples of government, some of it really terrible and some of it really bad. And I would suggest to you as you read those, they're divided into two camps. They are groups of leadership that are selfish, self-promoting, self-driven, raising themselves up and using others, or they're other-centered, outward-centered, and selfless, that they are using the resources to improve the lives of the people around them, that they are there providing places where people can be safe. I would challenge you that as I say the word government over the next few minutes, I'm not talking about America, I'm not talking about the UN, I'm not talking about California, I'm saying any group that gets together of any size. The group could be three people, it could be three million. What I'm suggesting is when you organize into some group, whether you're a choir or you're the California government, there's a reason and purpose to what you're doing and who you are and what you're about. I'm not loving this lid. And I think it happens in cases that sometimes you find yourself in charge of a small group and sometimes a large group. But what is that purpose and that role of that group that gathers? What happens when you're wrongly convicted and you spend around 13 years in prison? What sort of stance do you personally take if you are that person? You go to prison because you didn't commit any crime and you're locked up for no good reason, what kind of behavior and person are you in charge of yourself, your cell, or your cell block? And in the story of Joseph, Joseph decides that he's going to show integrity at each and every part of the way. Joseph decides that he's going to stand for the principles of God wherever he may be and not betray because I'm prison. I'm now allowed to do that. And he becomes what we would say today is a trustee. He becomes the kind of prisoner that they put in charge of things. And then he uses that only for the good and the service that he's asked to do. He's not part of any prison shenanigans. And he doesn't use being unfairly put in prison as a reason or excuse that he's allowed to commit bad behaviors, even though he's unjustly imprisoned. And you don't have to go to prison to have bad things happen to you. All of us have at times where we get involved in something where we're put at fault or we're blamed or we're being attacked over things that we had no ill intention. We didn't do anything wrong. Is every teenager here just raising their hand right now? What is going on? Why am I always in trouble? I'm doing my best. And you're riding my keister over this. It's like the life of every teenager. Happens to the grown-ups too, by the way. And you could decide to be vengeful and angry and bitter about it, or you can decide you're going to be the best version of you can in your limited place, in your limited way. And in Joseph, we find someone who's decided to hold integrity at all costs. So then what happens if you get the role of government and you're allowed to lead it? And in Joseph's case, through a series of interesting changes, he's suddenly out of prison. And because he can see a problem happening and a blessing, he puts the powers 
of the organization of the government to take our surplus and not make a profit with it, but to store it for a rainy day. So that later, when we don't have enough, there's stuff stored for us. And one way we see that happening in today's life is the way California manages our water. Over the last 50 years or so, we've built dams and put our water because a lot of our people live where there isn't any water. And we get a lot of water in California, but it's in the wrong place for where the people are. I don't know, I don't mean wrong like right or wrong, but it's in a different place than where the people are. And so we take the water from where we have it and store it and move it to where the people are. And when it doesn't rain for three years and you still have drinking water, that seems to be a decent idea. Now, we could take the other side and just tell them I'll move where the water is, but do you really want 10 million people living here? Maybe we just all right if we just give them the water and keep them where they are. But even in the way we define government, our government is defined in California that it's for the benefit of the people. That's what the government is supposed to do. And we here, in our role, participate in that, in community services. We have a sign out there in community services that our responsibility is to restore people into the image of God by providing help and assistance in what they need. That's our role of community services government here at Auburn, to help people with the ark, with food, with showers, with clothing, to family and friends that need it for their benefit. We don't charge for that. That's a role we play in the size of government that we've created here at Auburn. So then the next logical question is, what do you do when those that got you in jail and threw you out are now coming to you and they need something and they didn't pay their taxes? They're just showing up. They squandered the good stuff. Now they're hungry and they've come back to find out you got a lot of power and they don't have any. Now what do you do? And this is the part, again, I'm talking to the teenagers, I think, when we say we get even. Right? But Joseph doesn't go there either. Joseph decides that he's going to love his enemies as himself. And certainly his dad is happy and a few of his brothers are happy. But Joseph really, I think he does twist them a little bit in the wind. But at the end of it, they end up getting to come in and receive those blessings and benefits. And we don't screen people either for who deserves or doesn't deserve benefits. We're just here to help people be better, to be well, and better off. And so even in Joseph's day, he's paying attention to the words of Jesus to love our enemies as we love ourselves. Even though, honestly, his brothers were enemies, and they definitely railroaded a good part of his life. And what is our role? Even as individuals, we see it here at the church even, at fixing your streets or your borders or your boundaries. And Nehemiah will tell us a little bit about how we are to fix the wall in front of us, to be part of something that's happening right here in front of us. We do this with the street out in front here. We put stuff in, Tim and others, 
try to keep the potholes down because that's the road right in front of the church. That's our place. We have a role there too to take care of what's right in front of us. This happened when Sandy and I, we were living in Crestline near Loma Linda. And we were in a, similar to being here in Auburn, in a kind of a country setting, we were in the mountains near Lake Arrowhead, and everybody's dog ran free. Somebody's dog was knocking over everybody's trash cans and making everybody angry. And the state of the trash cans in that neighborhood were crazy. They were broken down, most didn't have lids, they were all ripped and torn. And everybody was trying to blame whose dog was doing it. And we had a dog as well. And I, you know, I could have got caught up in that whole neighborhood brouhaha about it. And I just thought about Nehemiah with the problem in front of my neighborhood, the problem in my street in front of me. And so I had a pickup then. I went down to the Ace Hardware store and I bought every trash can they had and I put three trash cans in front of every neighbor on my street, all the way around the curve on all sides, with good locking lids. I didn't say who did it, I didn't say it was me, I just put them all out there, and everybody got brand new trash cans with locking lids. And we all stopped fighting about whose dog was knocking over the trash. And nobody, I don't think, knows I did it. Everybody just got new trash cans. And the, Suddenly the problem is solved. So there's a lot of ways to approach problems and solutions if you have the means. Fortunately, I had the means to buy a bunch of trash cans. That isn't true for everybody. But I, I got to tell you, me personally, if, if you have a problem and money can solve it, uh, some money, a little money, it isn't really a problem if it can be solved by a little bit of money. Maybe a lot of money is a problem. Cancer is a problem because money often can't solve that. Things like that. But buying trash cans is not really a problem if you can buy trash cans. That's in the sea of things that are problems to me, they aren't really a problem. But we want to know, and I want now to talk to you a little bit about how we be changed into a different kind of people that have this patrios, this of our Father. And I got to ask you. Who do you think is your father? Who, who are you following? Who is guiding your way? Because in spite of what most of the kids think, we're not really in charge. If the grown-ups are telling you they're in charge, they're probably a pretty giant hot mess, I have to tell you, friends. Everybody benefits by being accountable to somebody. Everybody does. You can be a captain in a fire department, and you're accountable to the chief, and for good reason. They say you can either grow up or be a fireman, but you can't do both. And we definitely need the chiefs to make sure that the captains are wearing their pants the right direction. But every chief's accountable to someone above them as well, to make sure that they're managing the programs and procedures and policies correctly. No one is unaccountable or only accountable to themselves. And we can give you tons of examples of people that had no accountability, where they have unlimited money, unlimited wealth, unlimited opportunity, and you can read in the paper every day the sort of bad choices they make. That they're dying from drug overdoses, or they're committing crimes, or doing wicked things, when they're completely unaccountable to anything. 
We all need to be accountable to some kind of a loving father. And I want to suggest to you that in this place, some of you already know it and some of you may be wondering about it, but we think our father here is love. That is the foundational person that we want to get you connected to here at this church in this place is a father and a God whose foundation is based on the definition of a giving love without cost, without without transaction, that we want to share with you, introduce to you, and tell you that he's part of my life and other people here that teach here, that we know him personally as a moving force bound up in love helping us move our decisions forward, helping guide our choices, and helping us know what we know and believe what we believe. And so if you don't know that to be true, we want to invite you to meet with us that we can share with him and get you introduced. Because if you get introduced to him and get to know him, you will change in ways that you have been trying to do for a long time, and it will happen just through that connection. It will change who you are. Jesus told us about this. Greater love have no friend that, that no one has than this, to lay down one life for one's friends. And on 9-11, through the course of that day, there were over 400, well, there were thousands of firefighters, police officers, port authority workers, what we would call law enforcement and first responders, medical and fire, that entered those buildings and climbed up. And prior to anyone telling anybody what to do, about 8% of the people left on their own. There was about 18,000 people in the World Trade Center. 18,000. And about... 8% of them left. About 1,500 people said, oh, this looks like a good chance for a vacation day. I'll take one. And they left the building. The rest of people stayed at work because no one told them what to do or they believed that the right place to be was to remain in the building. And so literally every firefighter that was available in New York City came there to both tell them to get out, to guide them out, and to help them out. For plenty of people, it couldn't take like the elevator down 100 floors. Think about going down 100 floors. When I worked as a firefighter, we did this tower challenge. We would do, back on my station, we had this three-story tower, and we would climb up and down it 33 times to go to the 100th floor every week. We would climb to the top of the tower so that we would be ready for the smaller towers, certainly we had much shorter ones in Fontana where I was. But we'd be ready, and firefighters do that to be ready, and the law enforcement to be ready. And in that day, and you already know this, over 400 of them, more than 400, died in those buildings helping everyone else get out. And about 16,000 people got out of the building. So I would submit to you when we ask ourselves who served, and we would definitely say the military for sure, I would also suggest that the first responders also have reached out to serve 
to reach out to people, even if you're a 911 oper operator on the phone talking to people while they're scared for their lives and you're waiting to hear the sound of a siren on the phone coming to help them. That person really is a first responder because they call me out of the fire station to get up and go help people. They find out first. And then the problem doesn't just sit there. They don't just stay there. The firefighters don't just get them out of the building. They take them to, where are they going, everyone? There you go. They're going to hospital to get help there. So we have nurses and technicians and other medical people where we take our chaos and we drop it into their emergency room so that they can really spend the next hours, days, weeks, to put people back together and to restore them. Meanwhile, we've moved on to the next thing. And they're learning the names of their family and their friends, and they're doing all the kind of care. I would submit to you that those people are serving as well, that they are patriots. But we also learn about God and who he is, that he tells us to be good to our enemies, love our enemies, and bless people that are being mean to us. And I have to tell you, friends, and I say this to all of us as a warning, I hear a lot of us getting involved in attacking other people and making them feel smaller. And that isn't what Jesus did with the people around him. When Jesus found out about those filthy Samaritans, he didn't talk about Samaritans that way. They were the heroes in his story. Jesus didn't look at centurions who were holding us and our country imprisoned by their heathen, pagan place where they had no moral values. They were ruining the country. And Jesus didn't attack them. He was always looking for ways to invite them and care for them to heal their daughters, to take care of their needs, and to find ways to bridge that difference to serve them and to take care of them and find ways to help them. And so if we're struggling with that, I've got to tell you, friends, you just want to ask Jesus to move into your heart for you to see them the way Jesus sees them, for you to get to know them the way Jesus knows them, because Jesus died for all. Not just me. I know I'm worth it. But he died for everybody else too. And we want to be a part of that. Most people not be willing, would not be willing to die for an upright person. Maybe someone who's especially good. But God sent Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And if we want to see the world that way, I'm not asking you to try to do that. I'm asking you to meet the God who did do that for you. 
and invite him in to you so that you can see with his compassion, with his heart, for the people that are around you that are driving you bloody nuts. Because he thinks they're worth dying for. That they deserve to be rescued. We don't look at that. When people dial 911, we don't weigh whether they should be calling us. I went to the same house year after year that flooded and they would call 911 because everything in their property came down to a low point and it watered into their living room. And we would have to put sandbags on their door. And then we'd say, okay, next summer when everything calms down, you guys need to put some diverter channels around your house and we won't have to come back next year. And then you know what happened next year? We went back. They didn't do any of that other stuff. I did find out if you got a bunch of your buddies off-duty to go to their house and dig all those diverter channels for them over a couple of days, they didn't call you again. I did find that to be true. And you got to realize, friends, love keeps no records of wrong. God is not holding your sins against you. And he's inviting you to let him in so you can forgive your enemies as well. Because when people harm you once, they do get to harm you once. But if you let them keep harming you, because you won't let go of that, and release it to God, for it's God's to overcome, you could remain a victim forever, and that doesn't have to be. God is not keeping any record of what your wrongs are. And he's inviting you to let them, you can let go of the wrongs that have been against you. This is our verse here. That Jesus doesn't just call us servants, he calls us friends. He wants to be our brother. The God of the universe that spoke stars into existence wants you to be able to call him daddy. Wants you to be able to run up into his lap to the throne of grace. Run up freely. Jump on up. He's inviting you to come there. When the rabbis and elders were telling people, keep the children away from Jesus, Jesus was saying, let them all in. I told someone today with a little baby, if the baby's crying, they can stay in here. I'm all good with that. No one needs to be rushing the little children out of here because they're crying. I got no problems with that at all. I'm not worried about the solemnity and the sanctity of the sanctuary against the disruption of the children. I'm not that guy. We can save that for a different week. The kids are welcome here for me. And this is the Father that Jesus is inviting us here to reveal to everybody around us. That is the patriotism for us here in this place if you're one of our members and friends. And you don't do it on your own, but your father and your brother will save, who has saved us gives it through the Spirit. I'm not telling you to try harder. That's the Old Testament thinking. Give us the list and we'll try to keep it because we will fail, friends. You will only be successful by being transformed, by encountering Jesus as your personal Savior, and you will see the world the way he does, 
and see it differently. So what are we being called to do? How do we run our government for whatever you think the federal government should be doing, providing for the general welfare, promoting, ensuring peace, those sorts of things? But what are we called for, this group of us together, what we call the church, for today I'm calling our government, the church, how do we care for our neighbors? One thing we've mentioned is the uh, ark, or the um, community services. The other way we do it is with the ark, with Steve Holmes and that group. And we care for people's medical needs. You got a sore tooth, or you're feeling poorly, you can go over there and get help and we're gonna help you in the ways that we can manage, that we can drive our own government to care for our neighbors. Now this is the classic list, and we're gonna tell all the young folks that are getting ready to think about college, that we should teach children, protect folks from fire, care for sick folks, intervene people from violence, pastor a community. This is the standard list. We have lots of people here doing these things. Dave and Trevor are helping run the fire business. Gary is showing ways to protect people and to intervene. We have people like Debbie and Julie that are doing health care. We have all the teachers at the school, Coral and, and Dave and, and uh, Tom, that are helping teach our children and in the public schools as well. And so the rest of you, that's not everybody, some of you might be in some other kind of a job. So does this apply to you? Are you not on the list of service? And we think here, and we put it on the wall there, we're here to worship, we're here to connect together, and to get to know each other, and to find ways that we can take care of each other and love each other, and then turn that into some level of service. So when we ask here, who serves, we think that's everyone. Whatever your role in the world you are called to do it for the betterment of someone else. It's not to enrich you, it's for you to help somebody else. Let me tell you, if the President of the United States takes a week off, or my trash person takes a week off, which person am I gonna miss? I mean, we've been yelling for years about how many days the President golfs. But if my trash guy goes golfing, I got a problem. I got a real problem. Right? You want me loading trash in my Nissan Leaf? Right? So we're all called. Whatever you think the Lord is asking you to do, no one's job is better than anybody else's. If the person who cleans this church goes golfing for a month. You all are going to have a very different experience here in a few days. Go to any ambulance company house where they sleep over. In the fire station, everybody's cleaning every day, but if you work for an ambulance company, depending on who you work for, people are like stacking stuff on the trash can until it tips over and spills, it's not yours. So you take your wrap of whatever and put it on the throne. Not mine. 
till some unlucky person spills the whole thing. And that person has trash. Maybe some of you have lived in dorms and colleges know what that might be like. Those are very important acts of service that we all need. And we can do those together to do better. I had a friend, a very older lady, she's gone now, and I met her. She was in the Marine Corps, or had been in the Marine Corps long ago. And I said, oh, so, uh, so you were a Marine, huh? You know what she said to me? I'm not dead yet. <laughs> she spent 60 days in boot camp, 60 days, two months, and for the rest of her life, she is a Marine. Yes, yes. Hoorah, exactly. Semper Fi. Which, I'm not part of that group either, by the way. They get their own special flag. I'm not in that flag group. But listen, friends, is that what we say? Are we of something like that? Does someone come to us and see us and know us to say, oh, so you uh, used to be a Christian, huh? I'm not dead yet. In fact, what I want to say at my funeral is what my friend wants to say. When you come to my funeral, you can just say, he's not dead yet. Because I have no intentions of dying at all. Sleeping, maybe. But I have no intentions of dying in the long sense of the word. None at all. So let's think about the last little bit of a thought. Or near the last. We're almost done here. Over Ohio... There's a beef group of people riding on a plane, about 40 people riding on a plane. And they, up in the front of the plane in first class, see four guys jump up and kill one of the passengers, bust the door down into the cockpit, take over the plane. And they shove those 40 people into the back of the plane. And in the information that they have had to that point... When someone hijacks a plane, they land, get gas, get a million dollars, and fly somewhere else like Libya. That's what we know. These people get shoved to the back of the plane. There's already one dead person in the front, and the bad guys are flying the plane, and at least some of them have the cockpit door closed. And these people in the back of the plane decide to get on their phones and violate FAA regulations and talk on their cell phones which surprisingly does not bring the plane down. But they find out in those phone calls about what's happening is that other people have already changed the way the world runs and drove their planes into buildings and killing thousands. And so we have 40 regular people, some, seven of them work for the airlines, but the other 33 people are just people like you and me in the back of this plane and realize we're probably not just landing for gas. They're heading somewhere to the capital, perhaps. And we're just along for the ride. And so what do they do? And they decide that they're either going to get the plane back 
Are they going to make sure the plane lands somewhere in the middle of Pennsylvania and only kills 44 people, no more? And they try to take the plane back. And you all know this story. It's Flight 93. Some of you are too young, but you really know this. That they managed to crash this plane in western Pennsylvania and in an empty field. And they all die. But they die on behalf of all of us. They didn't sit in the plane and say, look, let's agree, let's vote which side of the Capitol we land on because we could get rid of a lot of the bad politicians. They said, we're going to do something for the rest of you and stop this in the only way that we can. We're either going to get the plane back or we're going to stop this now for you. We're going to lay our lives down for you. Just like Heather Penny and the colonel at the other end of Pennsylvania. These people were on the other end of Pennsylvania doing exactly the same thing. They had not taken an oath to the Constitution of the United States against enemies, foreign and domestic. They had not. But they had a love for us to not let anything bad happen to us. And they stopped it then and there. The other thing you don't probably know about Heather Penny is that this plane, Flight 93, is American Airlines. Her dad flies for American Airlines. The plane she's agreed to run into might be driven by her dad. It wasn't, but it might be. And, of course, everybody gets a nickname. Sasseville's nickname is Sass. That's his call sign. Heather Penny's nickname is Lucky. Because for Heather, when she launched her jet and didn't know it, that plane in Ohio that she was launching for had already been crashed by those 40 people. It had already run into the ground. But Heather didn't know that. Heather gets up because that's what she does. She serves. And she didn't, when she launched up there, say, you know, America, the free, home of the brave. She didn't sing the Star Spangled Banner. She didn't carry a little American flag. She said, Dear God, I hope I can do this right. She wanted for God to protect us by putting her place between us and that plane. The same thing as those people on that plane. So I would suggest to you, at least on that day, those 40 people also served. And if you look around in your day here, you will find people in this community here doing small-scale versions of exactly that if you will let them take care of you. We will stand between you and harm if you will let us. We will love you and cover you and carry you, and we will invite you to become one of us, of those people of their Father that are built to live a life in sacrifice to save those around us in whatever capacity we're called to do, whether it's cleaning toilets or stepping in front of bullets or whatever it is, we are of those people to love others.
whatever you do, whatever you do, and the praise team can come up, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You're here to serve everyone, and we here claim that. We here at Auburn claim to be a family to serve. And so when we talk about patriotism in this place, for those of you that agree with me, then we will be patriots for those people we bump into. We will serve you for the glory of our Father that you may be better. We ask you, Lord, for those that don't know you to send them a spirit of invitation. We ask you, Lord, for those that have not been baptized to give them a spirit of encouragement to join us because we want this group, this place right here, this group, and those that may be watching as well, that we become a people who serve, that we become patriots in your sense, Lord, that we are there not to divide, but to protect, to unite, and to lift up those around us, that we may lift them up to you, that they may see you for you, and that they may be transformed by you into a people that are like you, that would lay down their life for their friends and their enemies and those who are ungodly, that we live to care for them all. In Jesus' name we pray.